Good morning. You heard that. I was talking to myself. Good to see you. Hey, in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, David is anointed. In chapter 17, he takes lunch to his brothers and ends up slaying the champion of the Philistines, Goliath. In chapter 18, he's dwelling in the household, the court of the king Saul. In chapter 19, he's fleeing the court of Saul. He escapes because Saul sends troops to arrest David. And with his wife, uh, Mickle, he escapes and he runs to Samuel in Ramah. And in chapter 19, that occurs. Chapter 20, he comes back to where Saul dwells. He has a clandestine, a secretive meeting with uh, Saul's firstborn son, Jonathan, and that's in chapter 20. And then in chapter 21 is where we're going to pick up and be today, chapter 21 and chapter 22. I hope you'll read 1 Samuel, especially 16 and following, particularly 21 to 31, as we go through this series of learning how to sing in the desert. That's when David, especially in 21 to 31, is uh, on the run from, uh, from Saul. In chapter 16, as I mentioned, God made a promise to David when Samuel anointed David to be king. That was a promise. But we have to appreciate, and we get a sense of this, but I want to put it into words, very important. We have to appreciate that it took some 12 to 15 years for that promise to be fulfilled. That's bad news for us because we live in a culture of convenience. We live in a culture of convenience. I mean, everything is... I was going to mention, uh, for example, disposable cameras, but they're already come and gone. That's how disposable everything is. I mean, it's so convenient. It's so convenient. It's like we haven't any patience to wait for God. I remember when my children were at home, and uh, they were in those just the happiest years of adolescence. And, um, yeah, they were actually rather explosive times, full of drama. But I remember on one occasion, one of the kids was just crushed and brokenhearted. And you know, we are, as Shelley says, we're only as happy as our saddest child, which I, I love that expression that says it so well. 
And so when one of your children is crushed, the whole household is kind of crushed. And even though they're in their room with the door shut, and Shelly and I are conferring, and she goes in, and then she comes out, and we confer, and then I went in, and, uh, you know, I just, I really, in compassion, and I sat there, and I, you know, sometimes there's not much to say, and, and I said at one point, I said, uh, honey, have you prayed about this? I mean, this is a time where you pray and trust the Lord. <laughs> it just so fast it came back. I tried it, and it didn't work. <laughs> well, you know, our, our culture of convenience, I mean, it kind of fosters that, right? I'm sure that's an experience. I mean, that's almost a poetic way of capturing something we've all at some time, maybe not blurted out, but I love the frankness and the candor of that, and it, it was just so honest. There uh, I love praying to, asking the Lord to fix things, do things, change things. But his ways are not my ways. And he has more than just me to consider. And I think sometimes, well, I think a lot of times, more than just accustom, accommodating and customizing circumstances to suit me, God wants to change me from the inside out. He wants to grow me up. He wants to make me stronger and healthier. He wants to mature me, you know, so that I can manage the real world, not a world that is catered or the kind of world that is created by commercials and marketing, a world of convenience, a world that is kind of life-satisfied, quick, comfortable, and carefree. But that's not the way it really is, is it? We live by faith, and we trust in a faithful God. We put our faith in a God who is full of faith. Now, I, I hope I make. It's interesting, the word and the concept of faith, it, it can be used of trust or the expression of faith, and God is worthy of our trust. Uh, your faith cannot exhaust his trustworthiness, his faithfulness. But living by faith, is a growing experience because our faith is in Him. So our faith has to grow and will grow as we appreciate how full of faithfulness or faithful He is. Does that make sense? Everybody exercises faith. You, you, you use faith in all kinds of ways, all the time. Science involves faith. It's what you put your faith in that really distinguishes a Christian from any other kind of religion or practice or faith or activity or endeavor or pursuit or aspiration. 
It changes everything. Who do you put your faith in? And if you're putting your faith in the Lord, then your faith is going to expand as you trust him. If you don't put your faith in him, then it's a crapshoot. You know, excuse me, that means, you know, a toss of the dice. When I was a child, I loved to draw. And I loved, I really liked those, those in the back of magazines and stuff, you'd have the, they used to have a picture. Well, it wasn't. It was a series of dots, and the dots were numbered, one, two, three, four. And if you could connect the dots, a picture would emerge. That's a pretty good illustration of faith. Faith is realizing the picture that God wants your life to create. But sometimes drawing those lines between the dots, I mean, we want God to just almost put those dots right next to each other so that we can make sure we're doing everything just right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But see, God want, I wanted to be an artist. Hey, if I was still drawn dot to dots, would I be an artist? He wants, you know, he wants me to realize that he has, a, he has a bigger picture for me to draw. He wants you and me to be artists of, of a sort in faith. He wants us to be like Christ, the true artist, to grow into that kind of maturity. And we have to trust that God, in his providence, has arranged those dots, those movements. And we have to trust him as we draw the lines between the dots, so to speak. Because God has his purposes and his plan for our lives. God is faithful in that. But when we lack faith, when we don't trust him, or when the challenges and the scary challenges create a fear that is greater than our faith in Him, or as we talked last week, when we don't fear God, but we fear that thing, or that person, or that situation, then we do not have confidence. We don't have trust in His faithfulness. And when we don't have trust in his faithfulness, we go off the page. We start drawing something uh, of our own making. And I've got to tell you, I still like to do art and stuff, but I've done a lot of ugly drawings. (laughs) How do you practice faith? How do you practice faithfulness? one moment at a time. That's how you practice faithfulness. One moment at a time. Trusting the Lord when everything is not clear. And that's what David is experiencing, and not all that well in chapter 21. We started, though, realizing David was on the run in chapter 19, verse 18, Now David fled, 
And then in chapter 20, verse 1, then David fled. In chapter 21, verse 10, and David arose and fled that day from the face of Saul. When you're fleeing, well, listen, fear always prompts flight. And those, <laughs> those attempts of David to run and escape are a symptom of fear. And I'll tell you, fear can drive you crazy. Fear can drive you crazy. I want to show us uh, some of the places that David runs. Because in just in chapter 21 and 22, there are several years of time involved. And from chapter 19 to 22, there could be a number of years involved. So let me just kind of orient you. Do you have a Bible with you this morning? In the back of your Bible is a map, kind of like the map I'm going to show you right now. Some of you are familiar with that blue shape. That's representing the Dead Sea. You can always find that on a map of what we call the Bible land. And so that kind of helps you if you're looking along at a map in your Bible. What I want us to see this morning is that we begin in Gibeah. That's where David is in the court, if you will, of Saul. And then he runs in chapter 19 to Ramah. And then in chapter 21, or chapter 20, he runs back to Gibeah, and in chapter 21, he runs to Nob. And that we'll look at that in a minute. Then from Nob, verse 10 of chapter 21, he runs to Gath, which is a Philistine stronghold. And he barely escapes there, and then he runs to Adullam. And there... From there, a bunch of disgruntled, discouraged, disgusted, disappointed, disenfranchised. I'm running out of D's here. 400 men, it says, join David there. Up until that point, he's all alone. That's very important. And also, his family comes to him there, his parents and his brothers and then from there, he wants to take his parents to a safe place where they won't be in jeopardy or danger. So he takes them to Mizpah in Moab. Now, why would he go there? Well, David is one quarter Moabite. Do you remember the story of Ruth? That's David's great-great-grandmother. His father's grandmother. He has connections in Moab. So he takes his family there for safekeeping. And then from there, he comes back to Masada, the stronghold. That's what Masada means in Hebrew. When you say Masada, you're speaking a little Hebrew, but you're saying stronghold. And that other things could be a stronghold, but that is a location called the stronghold. And while he's there, the prophet comes to him and says, 
prophet of Gad, he says, you really shouldn't stay here. You need to go really deeper into the heart of Judah. And so David follows what the prophet says, and he goes to the forest of Hereth. Now, I don't know about the shape, but that's the best forest I could draw. So there you have it. It kind of helps you understand that a lot of time is, a lot of events are involved here, but the storyteller, the writer of Samuel, doesn't tell us what David does each and every day. He gives us some significant highlights that help us to understand what God is doing in David's life and how God is developing David. And we want to look at some of that this morning. In the grip of fear, what we're going to see in David's life is that he goes a little insane because fear can make you crazy. We're going to see it when he goes to Nob and talks to the priest, and we're going to see it when he runs to Gath. He runs to the Philistines. Why do we do that? And we do that. We do things that are kind of ungodly, even though we're on a godly path. To put it simply, back in 2005, a dear friend of mine, Barth Campbell, Barth was instrumental in leading me to, the, to Christ. We, we served the Lord together. We kind of went through training together. He went off and got his PhD. I went off and got, he went up to uh, Simpson University and became their professor of theology. And then look what happened to me. But not everybody can be a success. But at any rate, I am very happy. You are a success if you are faithful. And in that sense, I couldn't be more of a success. But Barth had been fighting melanoma. And he had whipped it once, but he lost his second battle. And to get up and see him, I only had a few days. I had to get... And he was way up in Reading, and so I did something I wouldn't normally do, and I started asking people a very bold and brash question. And a dear friend, one from within our church, responded because I said, I, I, there's no way I can get up there and get back like I need to. I just, I need to do it in one day. Can you provide me a plane and a pilot? And he did. And we took off in the morning, early in the morning, and flew up to Reading. And I spent the whole day with Barth and his wife, Sandy. One week to the day he died from, from the day I, I spent with him. And then Gary, the pilot, Gary was like a super pilot, you know, all his life flying planes. I, who knows, he might have started in the war or something. And, and now he flew for CEOs and Learjets and and prop planes and everything, and he's even a, he, he teaches people how to fly. I even have some hours now. He registered me because when we got back in the plane, I said, let's go, Gary. And he said, well, are you ready to take off? I said, I'm ready. He says, well, I want you to fly home. And uh, hey, look, I'm a guy who had never even been in a plane until after I married Shelly. I was in my late 20, mid, mid-20s or something, but he just talked me through it, and we got that thing in the air. And we're flying along, and he's telling me all about it, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty 
pretty comfortable at this whole thing now, you know? I mean, you just got to hold the thing. <laughs> keep the, keep the, all the instruments straight. We hit some turbulence. He said, hey, don't worry about that. Just think of it, just think of it as a beach ball bouncing on the waves. By the way, that's really helped me. You can thank me the next time you hit some turbulence. If you remember that, it will help you. You just bounce. And here's what I, always helped me. I know the pilot and, and the s stewards also want to get down as much as I do. So those things really help me beside prayer. But at any rate, then I'm feeling so good. I said to Gary, I said, Gary, there's a cloud over there because this was in April, and there were no clouds, but there was this one good-sized cloud. I said, can I fly us through the cloud? And he said, sure. And we talked about what it's like to fly by your instruments. It was nice having Gary in there, but we only had one of these things, you know, and so I'm flying in, in through the cloud, and, and I realized how much we depend on the instrumentation, so to speak, of faith when we can't see or we don't have the full ability of our senses. Do you ever realize that that's a lot like faith? Even GPS, do you ever use GPS? Sometimes my senses tell me this is not right, and I, I don't believe the instruments, only to find out later that, in my case, the instruments were right, and I was wrong. That's something like trusting the Lord. But there are those times where, where even we start to doubt the instruments, and we can do crazy stuff. And that's what David does. And that's what we do sometimes. We get our eyes off the Lord. We start to doubt his faithfulness. Maybe we justify that because we think, you know what, I, I did that little sin or that little selfish thing over there, and now he must not love me, and, or he wants to correct me by bringing all this fearful stuff into my life. There are all kinds of ways we start to justify it, but we, ultimately what we're doing is doubting. We're doubting God and his faithfulness to guide us and shape our lives in a way that lead us into Christ-likeness and goodness, and not only his best for us, but working his best through us in the lives of others, too, because we are not alone in this thing. And God is all about the group, so to speak, and not just the individual. So at any rate, we got home. He even had me land that thing. Boy, I was I've got to tell you, I don't want to do that again anytime soon. But David gets a little scared, and he comes in chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Let me just read a little of that to us. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter that, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. 
And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, that is pure. And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the, on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite. The chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth, probably the garment, one of the garments of Goliath, behind the ephod. It you will take. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul, from, literally from the face, the very, the very presence, the gaze, the reach of Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath, a Philistine king. Now, there's two things that happen here that tell me that fear has driven David a little crazy. One, he lies three times to the priest. And second, he's so frightful of Saul, probably because of the presence of Doeg, that he now flees the land and goes to a Philistine stronghold, Gath, and into the presence of a foreign king. Fear can make you do crazy things, things you wouldn't normally do. Fear can trump your faith in God. Fear can make you lie to hide things, to evade things, to get what you want. But here's the thing. When we engage in self-deception and the deception of others, that is, lying to ourselves and lying to others, it only enhances that craziness, that irreality, that falsehood, that deception. And it can cause us 
to turn to things and people that we normally wouldn't turn to or run to. And we can get engaged in things that are even over our head that sometimes are, we're lucky to get out alive. And that's exactly what happens to David here. Three lies. He says to, the, to Ahimelech, the high priest, he says, I'm on the king's official business. Now, why did he do that? A second lie. He says, my men are pure. Well, they darn tootin' are pure because you don't have any men. You don't even have a posse, David. But Ahimelech thinks that if he's on a mission for the king, he ought to have men with him, but they're just out of the way along with his weapons, too. He has no weapons. So there's a third lie. He says, you know, I'm in such a hasty mission. Uh, do you have any weapons? And so, yeah, could you give me provision of bread and weapons? I don't, I don't know. I think... I think possibly when David was in the house of Saul, so to speak, that was an influential, negatively influential experience, experience on him because Saul lies. Saul lied to Samuel. Saul lied to Jonathan in chapter 19. He lies to David in chapter 22 and other places. Michal, David's wife, she lies to the troops that Saul sends seeking David and then she lies to her father, and then she even lies about David to protect her own skin. David and Jonathan in chapter 20 lie. They conspire in a lie to tell Saul. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was the influence. Maybe David distrusted Ahimelech. We're not sure whether there's an Ahiyah in chapter 14, who's a priest, and he's kind of in David's pocket, and he has a brother. They both have the same father, and some think it's Ahimelech, and if that priest were Ahimelech's brother, then maybe there's some concern. Maybe that's why he's even a little frightened of David. He knows David is honored in the, in the house of Saul, he knows David. In fact, Achish, the king of the Philistines, will call David king when he comes, and he's not the king. So he's a pretty important dude, you know. But that might be one of the reasons. The other reason might be Ahiyah means brother of Yahweh. Maybe when he becomes high priest, now he becomes the priest of the king, which is what Ahimelech means. Interesting. Maybe David doesn't trust Ahimelech because he thinks maybe he is in the king's pocket. At any rate, that could be a reason that David feels like he could lie, or maybe David lies just because he feels it's okay because Saul's out to kill him, and Saul himself is a man of lies. I'm not sure what the answer is. This much I know. When you lie, it's hard to draw the line because lies beget lies, and lies break trust. The rule of the Word of God is this, don't lie. 
It's called bearing false witness. You should not bear false witness. Why? It injures people and it breaks relationship, and relationship is very important to God. It's what He's all about. But it says that in Exodus 20, verse 16. It's also interesting that in Psalm 52, 3, which is drawn from this very incident, this very incident, read it. When you look at the title of Psalm 52, it talks about, it mentions Doeg in the title of the psalm. But in chapter, uh, in Psalm 52, verse 3, it says, you love or choose evil more than good, lies, there's the same word, bearing false witness, than speaking the truth. Lying comes from fear. I have that on good authority. None other than uh, John Gotti. John Gotti, you know, the former Gambino mob boss? This is what he said. He said, I never lie because I don't fear anyone. You only lie when you're afraid. Well, I don't know if that's true. At least the first part, I never fear anyone. But I will tell you that fear does cause us to lie. Lying comes from fear rather than truth. That's why it said trying, <clears throat> lying is the most personal act of cowardice there is. Look, I'd rather tell you love the truth then don't lie. A lie has speed, but truth has endurance. You see, honesty is more than not lying. It's truth-telling, truth-speaking, truth-living, truth-loving. It's faithfulness. Faithfulness is truth. Do you know that the Hebrew word for faithfulness is emeth, and it's usually or often translated truth or faithfulness. And what is that kind of faithfulness? It means reliability, consistency. You can count on it. It's not going to be twisted. It's not going to change. It's not going to let you down. In fact, God's steadfast love, steadfast love, hear that? Steadfast love or loyal love is coupled with the word emmet, faithfulness. Over and over in the Psalms, I encourage you to realize that there's just no higher pursuit in your Christian life than to have such faith in God that His faithfulness is expressed in you. David then runs to the enemy. Do you know what happens so often? I've seen this happen. I've got to take just a quick minute here. I mean, I've been around the block. I know I look young and uh, inexperienced and probably lack wisdom, but I have been around the block. And I've found in personal relationships, now, these are relationships of work, of home, all kinds of relationships. When something bugs me about a person, that one little thing, that little thing they do, 
You know what I'm talking about? That little irritation, that annoyance. And if you, if you take that one thing that, that ugh, and you just think about that and you focus on that, it's kind of like putting your thumb over the sun. I mean, that little irritation, that, that thing can just get so big that all of a sudden you can't see any of the other good in a person's life. That's not accurate. That's not honest. I want to encourage you in your relationships. Part of being honest, part of being real, is, is not just seeing certain things, but seeing the balance of things in people, seeing the whole story, not just part of the story. You can lie and deceive by just telling part of the truth and not considering the whole truth. You can whisper to somebody. You can gossip to somebody a part of the truth that you can say, oh, that's true, but you know the whole thing is a lie because ultimately it's going to deceive and confuse and misrepresent that's not honesty. That's not faithfulness. That's not trustworthiness. And in our own relationships, sometimes those little things, we can blow out of proportion and lose sight of the whole. I've seen people in my office for counseling because they took a little negative, and all of a sudden, it's, it was all that they gave time and attention to in their relationship. And they fought over those negatives. When to a stranger or to somebody outside of that relationship, those people would see all of the good in that person's life and not just that one little negative. Okay, that's my public service announcement. But that's what David does here. You see, some t Saul is so big in David's life right now that he even runs to the enemy thinking that that's better. That's the solution. And when Akish recognizes him and says, hey, aren't you the guy? I mean, <laughs> and the people, they, wait a minute, what are you doing here, David? And David feigns insanity. It's right here in the end of chapter 21, verses 11 and following. David, I mean, he drools, he scratches the walls, you know, leaving marks. He acts like a complete madman. And because of that, he's able to escape because Akish says, don't I, don't I have enough madmen in my life? Do I need another? Get this guy out of here. By the way, many of you are business leaders or you're in positions of hiring people. Do not hire madmen. You, you don't need another madman on your staff or in your business. Well, anyway, this brings David to repentance because these realities, these close calls, and then the real shocker is that David gets news. He goes to Adullam. He runs that 15-some miles from Gath to Adullam. His, maybe his parents... At, at initially haven't arrived yet, but his parents arrived, the 400 men, but it's in that period also horrible, horrible news arrives, and that's the news of chapter 22. Saul was, Doeg went, he, he saw, he witnessed David's deception. He was there. We don't know why he was there. You know, he was an Edomite. 
Maybe he was thinking of converting and becoming a worshiper of the God of Israel. I mean, why would he be there? We don't know. That's a possibility. But he witnesses the deception of David, and he reports it to Saul because Saul wins loyalty through money, prestige, and promotion. And Doeg wants to be promoted. So he goes to David. And David, with Doeg and his men, they go to, to Nob and the high priest, and they confront Ahimelech. And Saul says, I know, Ahimelech, you're in this with David. You and David, you're conspiring against me. Doeg, when he reported, he reported that David consulted the priest, that he gained bread and a sword. I think that's the order. And then when Saul comes and confronts Ahimelech, he turns it around. That's the way his mind's working. That's what happens when you're lying to yourself all the time. You think everybody's out to get you. You do crazy things. You go a little mad. You lose your mind and go insane. And that's what's driving David crazy. And now he gets this news and Saul has ordered the assassination, the massacre of Ahimelech and the other 84 priests, 85 priests in all, and their entire families. The whole town's wiped out, men, women, and children. And he tells his men, go do that. But they won't do that. That's, a, that's going too far, Saul. I mean, we'll do some crazy stuff for you, but we're not going to do that. We do worship the God of Israel, but an Edomite doesn't. And Doeg carries it out, and the news comes to David, and he realizes when Abiathar, the one priest that escaped, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, comes to David, and he gets the news. And David, at the end of chapter 22, he says, I am guilty. He repents. And it's that repentance that turns us to the Lord and returns us to sanity. And that's what I want us to appreciate. You know, we're, we're going to, flying by instruments sometimes, we're going to take wrong turns, but when we come to our sanity, we, when we hear the word of the Lord, when we see what He wants us to do, we've got to do it and return to Him. And that's really what repentance is all about. In Psalm 52, Verses 1 through 7, David reflects on the kind of man Doeg is. And he says, I'm not going to be like that. In fact, he says, I hate that stuff. I don't want to be like that. And then in the last verses of Psalm 52, he says this in verses 8 and 9. And this is beautiful. Because this is a picture of real repentance. He's, he, says, he says, I am a young olive tree planted in your house. How long do olive trees live? Olive trees are among the longest living trees on earth. When we were in Israel, there were trees that were alive from the time of Jesus. They looked kind of nasty and ratty at that point, but they were still alive. They keep bearing fruit. What David is saying in this psalm, with Doeg in the superscription, David is saying, I am a young olive tree planted in your house. I am going to be faithful for the rest of my life. I'm going to grow strong in you, Lord. 
I'm going to grow old in you, Lord. I'm not going to go anywhere else. I'm going to be a a fruit-bearing tree in you, Lord. I think that is so beautiful. And what is it he turns to in that psalm? He says, your faithfulness, your loyalty, your steadfast love, your name, your name is faithfulness. Your name is steadfast love. In Psalm 34, the same thing. Read Psalm 34. I won't take the time. Psalm 57 is another that I think comes from the same period because of the comparison of verse 4 and 11 where he calls these men who have come to him young lions or lions. We'll talk about that at another time. But listen, if you're currently being tried and tested in your life, you will find great comfort in those songs, but more than that, in David's Lord. That is, when David turned, that is what brought him peace and victory over fear. We should repent every day. We should be repenting every day because, like 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when we think of confessing, it's not bookkeeping. It is agreeing with God. As God reveals, oh, wow, you know, guys, I looked at that girl with the wrong thought. And as God prompts us, convicts us, we say, you know what, that belittling, belittling, demeaning, no, Lord, that's not your heart. I want it to be mine. So I repent, I turn, I confess, you know? Whatever it is, false dealing, or the way we see the world, repentance should be a part of correcting our course, setting our faith according to the instruments, if you will, and flying by faith in God. Well. How do you practice faithfulness? Well, trust God in dangers, disasters, Saul's, and Doeg's. That was kind of my last point. And how do we practice faithfulness? One moment at a time. Will you stand with me? That's how you sing in the desert. Or sing in the rain, like today. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, unto me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness. May we walk in faithfulness one moment at a time. We love you, and we pray with praise and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.